This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Two The Widow Hullins House. One. The simple fact that he, first of all the citizens in Bursley, had asked the Countess for a dance, and not been refused, made a new man of Denry Machin. He was not only regarded by the whole town as a fellow wonderful and dazzling, but he so regarded himself. He could not get over it. He had always been cheerful, even to optimism. He was now in a permanent state of calm, assured jollity. He would get up in the morning with song and dance. Bursley and the general world were no longer Bursley and the general world. They had been mysteriously transformed into an oyster, and Denry felt strangely that the oyster-knife was lying about somewhere handy, but just out of sight, and that presently he should spy it and seize it. He waited for something to happen, and not in vain. A few days after the historic revelry, Mrs. Codlin called to see Denry's employer. Mr. Duncalf was her solicitor, a stout, breathless, and yet muscular woman of near sixty, the widow of a chemist and druggist, who had made money before limited companies had taken the liberty of being pharmaceutical. The money had been largely invested in mortgage on cottage property. The interest on it had not been paid, and latterly Mrs. Codlin had been obliged to foreclose, thus becoming the owner of some seventy cottages. Mrs. Codlin, though they brought her in about twelve pounds a week gross, esteemed these cottages an infliction, a bugbear, an affront, and a positive source of loss. Invariably she talked as though she would be willing to present them to anyone who cared to accept, and be glad to be rid of them. Most owners of property talked thus. She particularly hated paying the rates on them. Now, there had recently occurred, under the direction of the borough surveyor, a revaluation of the whole town. This may not sound exciting, yet a revaluation is the most exciting event, save a municipal ball given by a titled mayor, that can happen in any town. If your house is rated at forty pounds a year, and rates are seven shillings in the pound, and the revaluation lifts you up to forty-five pounds, it means thirty-five shillings a year right out of your pocket, which is the interest on thirty-five pounds. And if the revaluation drops you to thirty-five pounds, it means thirty-five shillings in your pocket, which is a box of Havanas or a fancy waistcoat. Is not this exciting? And there are seven thousand houses in Bursley. Mrs. Codlin hoped that her rateable value would be reduced. She based the hope chiefly on the fact that she was a client of Mr. Duncalf, the town clerk. The town clerk was not the borough surveyor, and had nothing to do with the revaluation. Moreover, Mrs. Codlin presumably entrusted him with her affairs because she considered him an honest man. And an honest man could not honestly have sought to tickle the borough surveyor out of the narrow path of rectitude in order to oblige a client. Nevertheless... Mrs. Codlin thought that because she patronised the town clerk, her rates ought to be reduced. Such is human nature in the provinces. 
so different from human nature in London, where nobody ever dreams of offering even a match to a municipal official, lest the act might be construed into an insult. It was on a Saturday morning that Mrs. Codlin called to impart to Mr. Duncalf the dissatisfaction with which she had learnt the news, printed on a bit of bluish paper, that her rateable value, far from being reduced, had been slightly augmented. The interview, as judged by the clerks through a lath-and-plaster wall, and by means of a speaking-tube, atoned by its vivacity for its lack of ceremony. When the stairs had finished creaking under the descent of Mrs. Codlin's righteous fury, Mr. Duncalf whistled sharply twice. Two whistles meant Denry. Denry picked up his shorthand notebook and obeyed the summons. "'Take this down,' said his master, rudely and angrily. "'Just as though Denry had abetted Mrs. Codlin. "'Just as though Denry was not a personage of high importance in the town, "'the friend of countesses, and a shorthand clerk only on the surface. "'Do you hear?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Madam.' "'Hitherto it had always been a dear madam, or dear Mrs. Codlin. "'Madam, of course I need hardly say that if, after our interview this morning, "'and your extraordinary remarks, you wish to place your interests in other hands,' I shall be most happy to hand over all the papers, on payment of my costs. Yours truly. To Mrs. Codlin. Denry reflected. Ass! Why doesn't he let her cool down? Also, he's got hands and hand in the same sentence. Very ugly. Shows what a temper he's in. Shorthand clerks are always like that. Hypercritical. Also, well, I jolly well hope she does chuck him. Then I shan't have those rents to collect. Every Monday, and often on Tuesday too, Denry collected the rents of Mrs. Codlin's cottages. An odious task for Denry. Mr. Duncalf, though not affected by its odiousness, deducted seven and a half per cent for the job from the rents. "'That'll do,' said Mr. Duncalf. But as Denry was leaving the room, Mr. Duncalf called out with formidable brusqueness, "'Machin!' "'Yes, sir?' In a flash, Denry knew what was coming. He felt sickly that a crisis had supervened with the suddenness of a tidal wave. And for one little second, it seemed to him that to have danced with the Countess while the flower of Bursley's chivalry watched in envious wonder was not, after all, the key to the door of success throughout life. Undoubtedly he had practised fraud in sending to himself an invitation to the ball— Undoubtedly he had practised fraud in sending invitations to his tailor and his dancing-mistress. On the day after the ball, beneath his great glory, he had trembled to meet Mr. Duncalf's eye, lest Mr. Duncalf should ask him, "'May Chin, what were you doing at the town hall last night, behaving as if you were the Shah of Persia, the Prince of Wales, and Henry Irving?' But Mr. Duncalf had said nothing, and Mr. Duncalf's eye had said nothing and Denry thought that the danger was past. Now it surged up. "'Who invited you to the mayor's ball?' demanded Mr. Duncalf, like thunder. "'Yes, there it was, and a very difficult question.' "'I did, sir,' he blundered out. Transparent veracity. He simply could not think of a lie. "'Why?' "'I thought that you had perhaps forgotten to put my name down on the list of invitations, sir.' "'Oh!' this grimly, and I suppose you thought I'd also forgotten to put down that tailor chap, Shillito. So it was all out. 
Chilitoe must have been chattering. Denry remembered that the classic established tailor of the town, Hatterton, whose trade Chilitoe was getting, was a particular friend of Mr. Duncalf's. He saw the whole thing. "'Well,' persisted Mr. Duncalf, after a judicious silence from Denry. Denry, sheltered in the castle of his silence, was not to be tempted out. "'I suppose you rather fancy yourself dancing with your betters?' growled Mr. Duncalf menacingly. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Do you?' He'd not meant to say it. The question slipped out of his mouth. He had recently formed the habit of retorting swiftly upon people who put queries to him, "'Yes, are you?' or "'No, do you?' The trick of speech had been enormously effective with Shillitoe, for instance, and with the Countess. He was in the process of acquiring renown for it. Certainly it was effective now. Mr. Duncalf's dance with the Countess had come to an ignominious conclusion in the middle, Mr. Duncalf preferring to dance on skirts rather than on the floor, and the fact was notorious. "'You can take a week's notice,' said Mr. Duncalf pompously. It was no argument, but employers are so unscrupulous in an altercation. "'Oh, very well,' said Denry. Unto himself, he said, "'Something must turn up now.' He felt dizzy at being thus thrown on the world, he who had been meditating the propriety of getting himself elected to the stylish and newly established sports club at Hillport. He felt enraged, for Mr. Duncalf had only been venting on Denry the annoyance induced in him by Mrs. Codlin. But it is remarkable that he was not depressed at all. No, he went about with songs and whistling, though he had no prospects except starvation or living on his mother. He traversed the street in his grand new manner, and his thoughts ran, "'What on earth can I do to live up to my reputation?' However, he possessed intact the five-pound note won from Harold Etches in the matter of the darlism. 2. Every life is a series of coincidences. Nothing happens that is not rooted in coincidence. All great changes find their cause in coincidence. Therefore I shall not mince the fact that the next change in Denry's career was due to an enormous and complicated coincidence. On the following morning both Mrs. Codlin and Denry were late for service at St. Luke's Church. Mrs. Codlin by accident and obesity, Denry by design. Denry was later than Mrs. Codlin, whom he discovered waiting in the porch. That Mrs. Codlin was waiting is an essential part of the coincidence. Now, Mrs. Codlin would not have been waiting if her pew had not been right at the front of the church, near the choir, nor would she have been waiting if she had been a thin woman, and not given to breathing loudly after a hurried walk. She waited partly to get her breath, and partly so that she might take advantage of a hymn or psalm to gain her seat without attracting attention. If she had not been late, if she had not been stout, if she had not had a seat under the pulpit, if she had not had an objection to making herself conspicuous, she would already have been in the church, and Denry would not have had a private colloquy with her. "'Well, you're nice people, I must say,' she observed, as he raised his hat. She meant Duncalf, and all Duncalf's myrmidons. She was still full of her grievance. The letter which she had received that morning had startled her and even the shadow of the sacred edifice did not prevent her from referring to an affair 
that was more suited to Monday than to Sunday morning. A little more, and she would have snorted. "'Nothing to do with me, you know,' Denry defended himself. "'Oh,' she said, "'you're all alike, and I tell you this, Mr. Machin, I'd take him at his word if it wasn't that I don't know who else I could trust to collect my rents. I've heard such tales about rent-collectors. I reckon I shall have to make my peace with him.' "'Why?' said Denry. "'I'll keep on collecting your rents for you, if you like.' "'You?' "'I've given him notice to leave,' said Denry. "'The fact is, Mr. Duncalf and I don't hit it off together.' Another procrastinator arrived in the porch, and by a singular simultaneous impulse, Mrs. Codlin and Denry fell into the silence of the overheard, and wandered forth together among the graves. There, among the graves, she eyed him. He was a clerk at eighteen shillings a week, and he looked it. His mother was a seamstress, and he looked it. The idea of neat but shabby Denry and the mighty Duncalf not hitting it off together seemed excessively comic. If only Denry could have worn his dress-suit at church. It vexed him exceedingly that he had only worn that expensive dress-suit once, and saw no faintest hope of ever being able to wear it again. "'And what's more,' Denry pursued, "'I'll collect them for five per cent, instead of seven and a half per cent. "'Give me a free hand, and see if I don't get better results than he did. "'And I'll settle accounts every month, or week, if you like, "'instead of once a quarter, like he does.' "'The bright and beautiful idea had smitten Denry like some heavenly arrow. "'It went through him, and pierced Mrs. Codlin with equal success.' It was an idea that appealed to the reason, to the pocket, and to the instinct of revenge. Having revengefully settled the hash of Mr. Duncalf, they went into church. No need to continue this part of the narrative. Even the text of the rector's sermon has no bearing on the issue. In a week there was a painted board affixed to the door of Denry's mother. E. H. Machin, Rent Collector and Estate Agent there was also an advertisement in The Signal, announcing that Denry managed estates, large or small. 3. The next crucial event in Denry's career happened one Monday morning, in a cottage that was very much smaller even than his mother's. This cottage, part of Mrs. Codlin's multitudinous property, stood by itself in Chapel Alley, behind the Wesleyan Chapel. The majority of the tenements were in Carpenter's Square, near too. The neighbourhood was not distinguished for its social splendour, but existence in it was picturesque, varied, exciting, full of accidents, as existence is apt to be in residences that cost their occupiers an average of three shillings a week. Some persons referred to the quarter as a slum, and ironically insisted on its adjacency to the Wesleyan Chapel, as though that were the Wesleyan Chapel's fault. Such people did not understand life and the joy thereof. The solitary cottage had a front yard, about as large as a blanket, surrounded by an insecure brick wall, and paved with mud. You went up two steps, pushed at a door, and instantly found yourself in the principal reception-room, which no earthly blanket could possibly have covered. Behind this chamber could be seen obscurely an apartment so tiny that an auctioneer would have been justified in terming it bijou. Furnished simply but practically with a slopstone, also the beginnings of a stairway. The furniture of the reception-room comprised two chairs and a table, 
one or two saucepans, and some antique crockery. What lay at the upper end of the stairway no living person knew, save the old woman who slept there. The old woman sat at the fireplace, all bunched up, as they say, in the five towns. The only fire in the room, however, was in the short clay pipe which she smoked. Mrs. Hullins was one of the last old women in Bursley to smoke a cutty, and even then the pipe was considered coarse, and cigarettes were coming into fashion, though not in Chapel Alley. Mrs. Hullins smoked her pipe, and thought about nothing in particular. Occasionally some vision of the past floated through her drowsy brain. She had lived in that residence for over forty years. She had brought up eleven children and two husbands there. She had coddled thirty-five grandchildren there, and given instruction to some half-dozen daughters-in-law. She had known midnights when she could scarcely move in that residence without disturbing somebody asleep. Now she was alone in it. She never left it, except to fetch water from the pump in the square. She had seen a lot of life, and she was tired. Denry came unceremoniously in, smiling gaily and benevolently, with his bright, optimistic face under his fair brown hair. He had large and good teeth. He was getting, not stout, but plump. "'Well, mother,' he greeted Mrs. Hullins, and sat down on the other chair. A young fellow obviously at peace with the world, a young fellow content with himself for the moment, no longer a clerk, one of the employed, saying sir to persons with no more fingers and toes than he had himself, bound by servile agreement to be in a fixed place at fixed hours, an independent unit, master of his own time and his own movements. In brief, a man. The truth was that he earned now in two days a week slightly more than Mr. Duncalf paid him for the labour of five and a half days. His income as collector of rents and manager of estates, large or small, totalled about a pound a week. But he walked forth in the town, smiled, joked, spoke vaguely, and said, "'Do you?' to such a tune that his income might have been guessed to be anything from ten pounds a week to ten thousand a year." and he had four days a week in which to excogitate new methods of creating a fortune. "'I've knelt for you,' said the old woman, not moving. "'Come, come now, that won't do,' said Denry. "'Have a pinch of my tobacco.' She accepted a pinch of his tobacco, refilled her pipe, and he gave her a match. "'I'm not going out of this house without half a crown at any rate,' said Denry blithely. And he rolled himself a cigarette, possibly to keep warm was very chilly in this stuffy residence, but the old woman never shivered. She was one of those old women who seemed to wear all the skirts of all their lives, one over the other. "'You're here for the better part of some time, then,' exclaimed Mrs. Hullins, looking facts in the face. "'I've told you about my son Jack. He's been playing.' "'Out of work. Six weeks. He starts today, and he'll give me some at Saturday.' "'That won't do,' said Denry, curtly and kindly. He then, with his bluff benevolence, explained to Mother Hollins that Mrs. Codlin would stand no further increase of arrears from anybody, that she could not afford to stand any further increase of arrears, that her tenants were ruining her, and that he himself, with all his cheery goodwill for the rent-paying classes, would be involved in her fall. Six and forty years have I been here in this house,' said Mrs. Hollins. "'Yes, I know,' said Denry. "'And look at what you owe, Mother.' It was with immense good-humoured kindliness 
that he invited her attention to what she owed. She tacitly declined to look at it. "'Your children ought to keep you,' said Denry, upon her silence. "'Them as is dead can't,' said Mrs. Hullins. "'And them as is alive has their own to keep, except Jack.' "'Well, then, it's bailiffs,' said Denry, but still cheerfully. "'Nay, nay, ye'll none turn me out.' Denry threw up his hands, as if to exclaim, "'I've done all I can, and I've given you a pinch of tobacco. "'Besides, you oughtn't to be here alone. "'You ought to be with one of your children.' "'There was more conversation.' which ended in Denry's repeating with sympathetic resignation, "'No, you'll have to get out. It's bailiffs.' Immediately afterwards he left the residence with a bright filial smile, and then in two minutes he popped his cheerful head in at the door again. "'Look here, mother,' he said, "'I'll lend you half a crown, if you like.' Charity beamed on his face and genuinely warmed his heart. "'But you must pay me something for the accommodation,' he added. "'I can't do it for nothing. "'You must pay me back next week, and give me threepence. "'That's fair. "'I couldn't bear to see you turned out of your house. "'Now get your rent-book.' "'And he marked half a crown as paid in her greasy, dirty rent-book, "'and the same in his large book. "'Eh, hey, you're a queer un, Mr. Machin,' murmured the old woman as he left. He never knew precisely what she meant, fifteen, twenty years later in his career. Her intonation of that phrase would recur to him and puzzle him. On the following Monday, everybody in Chapel Alley and Carpenter Square seemed to know that the inconvenience of bailiffs and eviction could be avoided by arrangement with Denry the philanthropist. He did quite a business, and having regard to the fantastic nature of the security— he could not well charge less than threepence a week for half a crown. That was about forty per cent a month, and five hundred per cent per annum. The security was merely fantastic, but nevertheless he had his remedy against evildoers. He would take what they paid him for rent, and refuse to mark it as rent, appropriating it to his loans, so that the fear of bailiffs was upon them again. Thus, as the good genius of Chapel Alley and Carpenter's Square, saving the distressed from the rigours of the open street, rescuing the needy from their tightest corners, keeping many a home together, when but for him it would have fallen to pieces, always smiling, jolly, sympathetic, and picturesque, Denry at length employed the five-pound note won from Harold Etches. A five-pound note— especially a new and crisp one, as this was, is a miraculous fragment of matter, wonderful in the pleasure which the sight of it gives, even to millionaires. But perhaps no five-pound note was ever so miraculous as Denry's. Ten per cent per week, compound interest mounts up, it ascends, and it lifts. Denry never talked precisely, but the town soon began to comprehend that he was a rising man, a man to watch. The town admitted that, so far, he had lived up to his reputation as a dancer with countesses. The town felt that there was something indefinable about Denry. Denry himself felt this. He did not consider himself clever or brilliant, but he considered himself peculiarly gifted. He considered himself different from other men. His thoughts would run, "'Anybody but me would have knuckled down to Duncalf and remained a shorthand clerk for ever.' 
Who but me would have had the idea of going to the ball and asking the Countess to dance? And then that business with the fan. Who but me would have had the idea of taking his rent-collecting off Dunkoff? Who but me would have had the idea of combining these loans with the rent-collecting? It's simple enough. It's just what they want, and yet nobody ever thought of it till I thought of it. And he knew of a surety that he was that most admired type in the bustling industrial provinces, a card. 4. The desire to become a member of the sports club revived in his breast. And yet, celebrity though he was, rising though he was, he secretly regarded the sports club at Hillport as being really a bit above him. The sports club was the latest and greatest phenomenon of social life in Bursley, and it was emphatically the club to which it behoved the golden youth of the town to belong. To Denry's generation, the Conservative Club and the Liberal Club did not seem like real clubs. They were machinery for politics, and membership carried nearly no distinction with it. But the sports club had been founded by the most dashing young men of Hillport, which is the most aristocratic suburb of Bursley and set on a lofty eminence. The sons of the wealthiest earthenware manufacturers made a point of belonging to it, and after a period of disdain their fathers also made a point of belonging to it. It was housed in an old mansion, with extensive grounds and a pond and tennis courts. It had a working agreement with the golf club and with the Hillport Cricket Club, but chiefly it was a social affair. The correctest thing was to be seen there at nights, rather late than early, and an exact knowledge of card-games and billiards was worth more in it than prowess on the field. It was a club in the Pall Mall sense of the word. And Denry still lived in insignificant Broom Street, and his mother was still a seamstress. These were apparently insurmountable truths. All the men whom he knew to be members were somehow more dashing than Denry, and it was a question of dash. Few things are more mysterious than dash— Denry was unique, knew himself to be unique. He had danced with a countess, and yet these other fellows— Yes, there are puzzles, baffling puzzles in the social career. In going over on Tuesdays to Hanbridge, where he had a few trifling rents to collect, Denry often encountered Harold Etches in the tram-car. At that time Etches lived at Hillport, and the principal Etches manufactory was at Hanbridge. Etches partook of the riches of his family, and though a bachelor was reputed to have the spending of at least a thousand a year. He was famous on summer Sundays on the pier at Landudno in white flannels. He had been one of the originators of the sports club. He spent far more on clothes alone than Denry spent in the entire enterprise of keeping his soul in his body. At their first meeting little was said. They were not equals and nothing but dress-suits could make them equals. However, even a king could not refuse speech with a scullion whom he had allowed to win money from him. And Etches and Denry chatted feebly. Bit by bit they chatted less feebly, and once, when they were almost alone on the car, they chatted with vehemence during the complete journey of twenty minutes. "'He isn't so bad,' said Denry to himself of the dashing Harold Etches and he took a private oath that at his very next encounter with Etches he would mention the sports club, just to see. This oath disturbed his sleep for several nights, 
but with Denry an oath was sacred. Having sworn that he would mention the club to Etches, he was bound to mention it. When Tuesday came, he hoped that Etches would not be on the tram, and the coward in him would have walked to Hanbridge instead of taking the tram. But he was brave, and he boarded the tram, and Etches was already in it. Now that he looked at it close, the enterprise of suggesting to Harold Etches that he, Denry, would be a suitable member of the sports club at Hillport, seemed in the highest degree preposterous. Why, he could not play any games at all. He was a figure only in the streets. Nevertheless, the oath. He sat awkwardly silent for a few moments, wondering how to begin. And then Harold Etches leaned across the tram to him and said, "'I say, Machin, I've several times meant to ask you, why don't you put up for the sports club? It's really very good, you know.' Denry blushed, quite probably for the last time in his life, and he saw with fresh clearness how great he was and how large he must loom in the life of the town. He perceived that he had been too modest. Five. You could not be elected to the sports club all in a minute. There were formalities, and that these formalities were complicated and took time is simply a proof that the club was correctly exclusive and worth belonging to. When at last Denry received notice from the secretary and steward that he was elected to the most sparkling fellowship in the five towns, he was positively afraid to go and visit the club. He wanted some old and experienced member to lead him gently into the club, and explain its usages, and introduce him to the chief habitués. Or else he wanted to slip in unobserved while the heads of clubmen were turned. And then he had a distressing shock. Mrs. Codlin took it into her head that she must sell her cottage property. Now Mrs. Codlin's cottage property was the backbone of Denry's livelihood, and he could by no means be sure that a new owner would employ him as rent-collector. A new owner might have the absurd notion of collecting rents in person. Vainly did Denry exhibit to Mrs. Codlin rows of figures showing that her income from the property had increased under his control. Vainly did he assert that from no other form of investment would she derive such a handsome interest. She went so far as to consult an auctioneer. The auctioneer's idea of what could constitute a fair reserve price shook, but did not quite overthrow her. At this crisis it was that Denry happened to say to her, in his new large manner, "'Why, if I could afford, I'd buy the property off you myself, just to show you.' He did not explain, and he did not perhaps know himself what had to be shown. She answered that she wished the goodness he would. Then he said wildly that he would, in instalments, and he actually did buy the widow Hullins half a crown a week cottage for forty-five pounds of which he paid thirty pounds in cash, and arranged that the balance should be deducted gradually from his weekly commission. He chose the widow Hullins, because it stood by itself, an odd piece, as it were, chipped off from the block of Mrs. Codlin's realty. The transaction quietened Mrs. Codlin, and Denry felt secure, because she could not now dispense with his services without losing her security for fifteen pounds. He still thought in these small sums, instead of thinking in thousands. He was now a property-owner. Encouraged by this great and solemn fact, he went up one afternoon to the club at Hillport. His entry was magnificent, superficially, 
No one suspected that he was nervous under the ordeal. The truth is that no one suspected because the place was empty. The emptiness of the hall gave him pause. He saw a large framed copy of The Rules hanging under a deer's head, and he read them as carefully as though he had not got a copy in his pocket. Then he read the notices, as though they had been the latest telegrams from some dire seat of war. Then, perceiving a massive open door of oak, the clubhouse had once been a pretty stately mansion, he passed through it, and saw a bar, with bottles, and a number of small tables, and wicker chairs, and on one of the tables an example of the Staffordshire signal, displaying in vast letters the fearful question, "'Is your skin troublesome?' Denry's skin was troublesome. It crept. He crossed the hall, and went into another room, which was placarded Silence, and Silence was, and on a table with copies of The Potter's World, The British Australasian, The Iron Trades Review, and The Golfer's Annual, was a second copy of the signal, again demanding of Denry, in vast letters, whether his skin was troublesome. Evidently the reading-room. He ascended the stairs, and discovered a deserted billiard-room with two tables. Though he had never played at billiards, he seized a cue. But when he touched them, the balls gave such a resounding click in the hush of the chamber, that he put the cue away instantly. He noticed another door, curiously opened it, and started back at the sight of a small room, and eight middle-aged men, mostly hatted, playing cards in two groups. They had the air of conspirators, but they were merely some of the finest solo whist-players in Bursley. This was before Bridge had quitted Pall Mall. Among them was Mr. Duncalf. Denry shut the door quickly. He felt like a wanderer in an enchanted castle, who had suddenly come across something that ought not to be come across. He returned to earth, and in the hall met a man in shirt-sleeves, the secretary and steward a nice, homely man, who said in the accents of ancient friendship, though he had never spoken to Denry before, "'Is it Mr. Machin? Glad to see you, Mr. Machin. Come and have a drink with me, will you? Give it a name.' Saying which, the secretary and steward went behind the bar, and Denry imbibed a little whisky and much information. "'Anyhow, I've been,' he said to himself, going home. Six. The next night he made another visit to the club, about ten o'clock. The reading-room, that haunt of learning, was as empty as ever, but the bar was full of men, smoke, and glasses. It was so full that Denry's arrival was scarcely observed. However, the secretary and steward observed him, and soon he was chatting with a group at the bar, presided over by the secretary and steward's shirt-sleeves. He glanced around, and was satisfied. It was a scene of dashing gaiety and worldliness that did not belie the club's reputation. Some of the most important men in Bursley were there. Charles Ferns, the solicitor, who practised at Hanbridge, was arguing vivaciously in a corner. Ferns lived at Bleakridge, and belonged to the Bleakridge Club, and his presence at Hillport, two miles from Bleakridge, was a dramatic tribute to the prestige of Hillport's club. Ferns was apparently in one of his anarchistic moods. Though a successful businessman who voted right, he was pleased occasionally to uproot the fabric of society, and rebuild it on a new plan of his own. To-night he was inveighing against landlords, 
He, who by conveyancing kept a wife and family and a French governess for the family, in rather more than comfort. The Ferns's French governess was one of the seven wonders of the five towns. Men enjoyed him in these moods, and as he raised his voice, so he enlarged the circle of his audience. "'If the by-laws of this town were worth a bilberry,' he was saying, "'about a thousand so-called houses would have to come down to-morrow. "'Now there's that old woman I was talking about just now, Hullins. "'She's a Catholic, and my governess is always slumming about among Catholics. "'That's how I know. "'She's paid half a crown a week for pretty near half a century, "'for a hovel that isn't worth eighteen pence. And "'Now she's going to be pitched into the street because she can't pay any more. "'And she's seventy if she's a day. "'And that's the basis of society.' "'Nice refined society, eh?' "'Who's the grasping owner?' someone asked. "'Old Mrs. Codlin,' said Ferns. "'Here, Mr. Machin, they're talking about you,' said the secretary and steward, genially. He knew that Denry collected Mrs. Codlin's rents. "'Mrs. Codlin isn't the owner,' Denry called out across the room, almost before he was aware what he was doing. There was a smile on his face and a glass in his hand.' "'Oh,' said Ferns, "'I thought she was. Who is?' Everybody looked inquisitively at the renowned Machin, the new member. "'I am,' said Denry. He had concealed a change of ownership from the widow Hullins. In his quality of owner he could not have lent her money in order that she might pay it instantly back to himself. "'I beg your pardon,' said Hearns, with polite sincerity. "'I'd no idea.' He saw that unwittingly he had come near to committing a gross outrage on club etiquette. "'Not at all,' said Denry. "'But suppose the cottage was yours. What would you do, Mr. Ferns? Before I bought the property I used to lend her money myself to pay her rent.' "'I know,' Ferns answered, with a certain dryness of tone. It occurred to Denry that the lawyer knew too much. "'Well, what should you do?' he repeated obstinately. "'She's an old woman,' said Ferns, "'and honest enough, you must admit. "'She came up to see my governess, and I happened to see her.' "'But what should you do in my place?' Denry insisted. "'Since you ask, I should lower the rent and let her off the arrears,' said Ferns. "'And suppose she didn't pay then? "'Let her have it rent-free because she's seventy, or pitch her into the street?' "'Oh, well—' "'Ferns would make her a present of the blooming house, and give her a conveyance free,' a voice said humorously, and everybody laughed. "'Well, that's what I'll do,' said Denry. "'If Mr. Ferns will do the conveyance free, I'll make her a present of the blooming house. That's the sort of grasping owner I am.' There was a startled pause. "'I mean it,' said Denry firmly, even fiercely, and raised his glass. "'Here's to the widow Hullins.' There was a sensation, because, incredible though the thing was, it had to be believed. Denry himself was not the least astounded person in the crowded, smoky room. To him it had been like somebody else talking, not himself. But as always, when he did something crucial, spectacular, and effective, the deed had seemed to be done by a mysterious power within him, over which he had no control. This particular deed was quixotic, enormously unusual a deed assuredly without precedent in the annals of the five towns. And he, Denry, had done it, 
The cost was prodigious, ridiculously, and dangerously beyond his means. He could find no rational excuse for the deed. But he had done it, and men again wondered. Men had wondered when he led the Countess out to waltz. That was nothing to this. What, a smooth-chinned youth giving houses away? Out of mere mad impulsive generosity? And men said, on reflection, Of course, that's just the sort of thing Machin would do. They appeared to find a logical connection between dancing with a countess and tossing a house or so to a poor widow. And the next morning, every man who had been in the sports club that night was remarking eagerly to his friends, I say, have you heard young Machin's latest? And Denry, inwardly aghast at his own rashness, was saying to himself, Well, no one but me would ever have done that. He was now not simply a card. He was THE card. End of chapter 2